Our kingdom series in Matthew brings us today to one of the most famous sermons ever preached, arguably the most famous sermon ever preached. And uh, we're going to take a few weeks looking at it, okay? A couple weeks taking a look at this. And uh, this is, as you might guess, the Sermon on the Mount, okay? The Sermon on the Mount. So what I want to do today is I just want to, I want to talk, like, why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? What was it really all about? And then as we get into the Beatitudes today, like, what's a Beatitude? And then one Beatitude in particular that we're going to focus on, okay? So that's the direction of our message here today. And uh, let's begin by, why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? And if you have a Bible, you can look at Matthew 5, verse 1, and I think you'll pick up why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what it says. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and we, when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, okay. So, kind of obvious, isn't it? Why it's called Sermon on the Mount, it says that he went up on the mountain and, uh, and, and gave this message. So here's what's going on. His public ministry has begun. If you look in chapter 4 there, uh, we had the temptation that we, st- that we talked about last week. And then he begins his public preaching ministry, and we have him performing miracles. And as he's doing that, word is going out into all of the area, all the way down to Jerusalem, all the way across Transjordan. People are talking about Jesus. And people are coming from all of these areas, and the crowds are starting to pack out, and people are everywhere, and everybody's wanting to hear him, see him, see him do a miracle, hear some word from his mouth. And the text here says that he sees all of these massive crowds, and he goes up onto a mountain. Now, the mountain here was probably one of the mountains, large hills around the Sea of Galilee. And if we ever go on another tour of Israel, maybe you'll get a chance to go with us, and you can see kind of the area. We're not sure exactly where this happened, but generally the area that Jesus would have given this sermon. It's a very beautiful space. The, and by the way, mountain here, don't think like Grand Tetons, okay? So they're not, there's not grappling hooks and, you know, they're not climbing up ropes. It's just more of a, you know, a, we might call it a large hill, but we do live in the area that calls a hill of sand Mount Baldy, okay? So mountain is a relative term, okay? But a very high, very, very high hill, small mountain, and uh, the hillside allowed a very sort of acoustically friendly area so the people could be above him and he could, and the text says that he sat down. That was the practice of the teachers of the day. They would sit and they would teach. So it's called the Sermon on the Mount because it was given on a mountain. What is the message, though? What is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? And this is a very hotly debated subject. And the literature on the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, I mean, it's hard to get your, 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 your head around. And I read a lot, but I didn't read all of it. I, I read somebody, I think this is me in my memory, that uh, like there were 10,000 articles written uh, about the Sermon on the Mount, like in the last century, something like that. So I only read like half of them to get ready for this sermon. Uh, there's nothing in the Sermon on the Mount about lying, so it's okay with that. <laughs> Okay. Everybody loves the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, from across 
the ideological, political, even religious spectrum. Like Gandhi loved the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. loved the Sermon on the Mount. The political left loves the Sermon on the Mount. The political right loves the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody quotes, uses, loves the Sermon on the Mount. And even within more conservative theological circles, which are the circles that we run in, there is still massive debate about the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. There are schools of thought that say Jesus is talking about this is what it's going to be like someday in my millennial kingdom. It doesn't apply to today. Then there's the other side that says it's only for today and it doesn't have that sort of future dimension. And so you got all this debate, all this literature, all of these articles. It's my role to say what I think, okay, as the pastor of this church. And this is what I think. The Sermon on the Mount describes the inner and outer life of the citizen of the kingdom of God. It describes the inner and the outer life of the citizen of the kingdom of God. It speaks presently, okay, to today by challenging citizens of the kingdom, we might call them Christians, but in kingdom language in this kingdom series, citizens of the kingdom of God, it challenges us presently to live today like this. We can't read the Sermon on the Mount and go, well, someday when I'm glorified, I'm sure I'll, you know, try to fulfill these things. No, this applies to today, okay? It applies to today, and it challenges us. It, it causes us to aspire to what he is laying out here. But also, it has a future dimension because all of us look at this and we go, I can't do it. Like, we know ourselves. I look in the mirror, I'm like, I do not see the Sermon on the Mount that much, really, in my life. Because it's so challenging to apply it inwardly, which is what Jesus does. He takes the Old Testament law and he applies it inwardly. The Pharisees applied it outwardly, Jesus applies it inwardly, and that's the rub. That's the challenge of it. It's kind of like, if I could compare it to this way, it's like a doctor who, there's a guy that smoked, you know, smoked packs of cigarettes all his life, whatever, and the doctor says, hey, he goes, you got to stop smoking. You stop smoking, you're going to feel good right away. But someday, you're going to feel really good if you stop smoking. It's kind of like that. Like the Sermon on the Mount, it has a present day reality to it. Like right away when I apply this and begin living it out, there are blessings that flow to me. But I also know that as I read this, there is a future day coming when I'm going to experience what this is talking about in a whole way that I can't in this life because of this sick, sinful body that I have. It's kind of like that. And the reason that this is so difficult, I think, to to understand and why there's so much debate about it is Jesus is talking about a kind of life that we can hardly conceive of. Sinners read the Sermon on the Mount, we're like, what's he talking about? Like, oh, there is no way, right? I would draw the analogy this way. It's kind of like if you're a fisherman, if you caught a fish and let's say you could have a conversation with the fish, right? And you got the fish, you take the hook out of his mouth and you, you say, he's like, you know, What's going on here, right? This is air. He's like, air, what's air? It's how we get our oxygen. He's like, I only know getting oxygen from water. What do you mean you're breathing air? Couldn't conceive of it, okay? I don't know if that works very well or not, but as an analogy, but it's kind of like that because Jesus is talking to us in the analogy, we're the fish. He's talking to us and he's saying, this is what the pure, clean air of the kingdom of God is like. 
And all we've known, like the fish, is this sinful world and our sinful hearts, and we can't even conceive of a kind of life that is free from lust and free from anger and, you know, promise-keeping and generous and all the rest. It's like beyond our ability to understand, Jesus, what are you talking about? I think this is why uh, he gets to the end of his sermon, and the response of the crowd is this, uh, chapter 7, verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Like fish trying to understand breathing oxygen with lungs, the crowds that heard Jesus, even, and by the way, this isn't, these aren't biker gangs or something that he's, that he's speaking to. These are ultra-religious Jewish people that are memorizing the Old Testament from the time that they can even memorize anything. They're going to synagogue all the time. They're admiring religious leaders. They're reading the Bible all the time. Even they hear the teaching of Jesus, and they're like, we can't understand what you're talking about. How much less... People like us in our culture today. So this is radical. The Sermon on the Mount's radical. Like it's really radical when properly understood. All right, so there's a little uh, overview. I want to focus in on the Beatitudes and then focus in on one Beatitude. Okay, so we're kind of narrowing here, narrowing. Let's talk about the Beatitudes. And maybe you've never heard that word before. Okay, it's not a word you hear commonly in our culture. What is a beatitude? A beatitude, it, it derives its name from an old Latin word for blessing, and it's just kind of come to us as a beatitude, and it's a style of writing. It's almost like a proverb, okay? It's a style of writing. There are some in the Old Testament. There's some in the New Testament. These are for sure the most famous beatitudes, but a beatitude will uh, begin. It's kind of pithy. It's sort of short, easy to remember, and it begins with a blessing, it designates who the blessing applies to, and, uh, and it gives a required condition for the blessing. And the Beatitudes in Matthew are here in chapter 5, and Matthew has eight of them, okay, the eight Beatitudes. Two of them are present tense, six of them are future tense, and what I'd like us to do is to stand and to read the Beatitudes together. Could we do that a second? In fact, I'm wondering, did we get these on the screen? I, we did. Can we read this together, actually? Let's do it. We'll just do it together off the screen. Here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes. Thank you. You may be seated. Did you get the kind of the rhythm of the Beatitude, right? All began with blessed. All of them designate a, a 
person or group that they apply to along with a condition for that blessing, and then there is a promise associated with it. So we look at these, at these eight, and we see that there is a, there is a to us, to the fish, an irrational connection between the condition and the promise. Okay, I don't know if you caught that. Okay, the poor in spirit, okay, poor normally do not have a kingdom, but the poor in spirit have, have the kingdom of heaven, right? Or blessed are they who mourn. Okay, mourning means that I am seeking comfort. They are actually the ones that are comforted. Blessed are the meek, okay? These aren't the people that generally sort of rule the world, but they're the ones that inherit the earth, okay? You see, it's, it's like, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? What Jesus is saying, that's why the crowds are like, what? Because what he says is the opposite of the way that it works in the world that we live in. For example, again, uh, where, where do we get an inheritance? Where do we get satisfaction? How do we receive mercy? Even a relationship with God the world pursues all these things, right? The world, the world wants a kingdom. The world wants comfort. The world wants an inheritance. The world wants to be satisfied. Remember Ecclesiastes? We just got done studying Ecclesiastes where Solomon's like, I can't get any satisfaction. I've tried this. I've tried that. That's the world that we live in. What Solomon didn't try in the list that I remember is meekness. You want to get all these things, be meek. Counterintuitive. Totally counterintuitive. And the rest... The rest as well. So Jesus is just like blowing everybody's mind. And we see just a radical, apparently ir- irrational to sinners approach to life. And the entire Sermon on the Mount is that way. It's kind of like opposite day. Do you ever play opposite day with your kids or with people where what you say you actually mean the opposite? Try it sometimes. It's sort of fun. It's like Jesus is playing opposite day. I'm going to be opposite of the world entirely. And yet what Jesus is saying is actually truth, okay? Truth. We can't imagine living a lifestyle like the Sermon on the Mount describes. Like, we can't imagine a kingdom that that's like the ethic of it. But it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It sounds wonderful. So we saw in the, uh, in the Beatitudes that they all begin with the same word, Okay, they begin with this word, blessed. What does it mean to be blessed or blessed? I don't know why we say it that way, but blessed are, blessed are. We all kind of did blessed, didn't we, when we were reading that? Is that a, like a, I don't know why we, why do we do that? I've never thought of it till this moment right now. Aren't you blessed? We don't say that. We say, aren't you blessed? And yet we read the, I don't know why. Somebody will tell me probably why afterwards. Okay, but what does it mean? Okay, what does that mean? And there are some translations that actually translate it happy. Happy. And most people read the Beatitudes that way, they, which is, by the way, wrong. We read it like, this is my existential experience. This is how I will feel inside if I am meek, mourning, whatever. In other words, we sort of insert ourselves into the blessing. We assume that that's talking about us. We are the ones that are blessed. And there is a certain truth to that. But what God is doing here is is this. He is approving. He is approving of those that are meek. He is approving 
of those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. It, is, it, it means that, 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 that God is sanctioning, he is, he is bestowing blessing, but it doesn't begin with us. It's not me being happy, it is God being happy in me. Okay. Max Lucado wrote a book years ago on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and the title of the book and his definition of what blessed here means is the applause of heaven. That's my favorite definition of what it means, the applause of heaven. In other words, when I, when I am meek, if I listen carefully, off in the distance I hear, it's God applauding, right? When I hunger and thirst for righteousness, off in the distance I hear, God is applauding. The approval of God when we are in these spiritual conditions, which certainly blesses us, by the way. It's a little bit like what Jesus had in his baptism, right? When he come out of the water, and and what does he hear? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How do we, as sons and daughters of God, how do we get the approval of God? When we mourn, when we are poor in spirit, when we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, God delights in us. Okay? So, Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, blessed. I want to focus on one Beatitude with you today. Okay? And we find it in verse 3. I'll read it again. It is the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Now, we already talked about blessed, okay? <laughs> poor in spirit. What is that talking about? What's it, what does that mean? Okay? And we look at it, we can say, well, this is good news, okay? We are, when we are poor materially, when there's no money in my wallet, I open my wallet, there's no money in it, I listen in the distance, and God is approving of me. But it, that's not what it says, is it, right? It doesn't, blessed are you when you are poor in wallet or poor in money, it is blessed when you are poor in spirit. Which the good news for that is that your economic condition has nothing to do with whether or not you can be poor in spirit and have the approval of God. This is not uh, the rich or the poor that have advantage in this. This is an internal quality. Poor in what way? Notice lacking, it's poor in spirit. So I could look and say, okay, when I am lacking in spirit, when I am impoverished in spirit, is that what it's trying? I got to try to be that way? And we see here, this is not as easy as it sounds to understand what does poor in spirit mean. Now, the clue here is actually in the second part of the verse. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Notice is, present tense. Many, six of these other ones are all future promises. There are two that are present, and this is one of them. When I am poor in spirit, at least the way that Jesus is talking about, presently right now, I have or I am in the kingdom of God. And that is why this particular beatitude is so critical. It is the foundation one for all the rest. Indeed, it is the foundation for the entire Sermon on the Mount. You could argue it this way, that 
this one beatitude is a summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means this. It means to be humble. It means to be selfless. It means that I am acknowledging my absolute dependence upon God. It is the opposite of self-dependence and self-reliance and self-glory. It is, it is you know, we'll talk about somebody who will say, he is so full of himself. What do we mean by that? In his heart, he is so enraptured with himself, there's no room for anybody else. There's no room to love anybody else. There's no room for God in his life. There's no room for the kingdom of God because he's all about the kingdom of himself. Okay, he is rich in spirit. He is rich in self. But Jesus says we are to be poor in spirit. That's the opposite. It is to be emptied of my desire, my living for me. Here's uh, A.W. Pink. To be poor in spirit is to realize that I have nothing, am nothing, and can do nothing, and have need of all things. Poverty of spirit is a consciousness of my emptiness, the result of the Spirit's work within me. It is the sinner who comes and realizes his actual standing before God. This is not the proud man, this is the humble man who realizes I am completely dependent upon God. This is the, the, the sense, the standing of the person, the first second they step into eternity. Everybody steps into eternity poor in spirit because in that moment you see the glory of God and you realize, I am nothing. This is Isaiah when he has that in Isaiah 6, that vision of, of God, where, of, of the glory of Jesus, and he just falls down, right? This is the disciples when they, when they see a miracle from Jesus or Peter when, you know, I am I'm an unworthy man. I am a man undone. These, this is the... This is who we actually are. Again, we're the fish, right? Jesus is describing something. We're like, I can't get it. I can't get it. Because we live every day all about us and me and sort of look at me. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. You, you are utterly dependent upon God. You derive your entire being and significance. The air in your lungs is a gift from God. Be poor in spirit. Less of you. All right, I got these pictures up here, and I'm going to try this illustration this service, but I'm not promising the next two. We'll see how it goes, okay? And the tech team said, don't splash anything. We don't want to stain anything. So I'm going to be very careful about that. I wish they were a little more poor in spirit. <laughs> okay, so this is, just, this is just an illustration, okay? Simple, nothing fancy here, but I got two pictures, okay? And... Here is, here is, this is us. We are born full of self. That's who we are, right? As sinners, we are naturally selfish, naturally prideful, naturally all about us. And then we live life, don't we? And what happens over the course of life if we really are attuned to what's going on? We come to realize over time that we're not all that, right? Right? We're not all that. 
kind of fun to see that like star high school athlete, right? And he just walks around town, drives the nice car, dates the prettiest girl in town, and we older people are like, you just wait, right? Because we all were there, let's be honest. Kidding. Uh, Over time, pain enters into our life. Loss enters into our life. Health issues enter into our life. And here's the big one. For those that are citizens of the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit enters into our life. In order to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, you have to humble yourself. It is to acknowledge that I am not my own savior. I need a savior. So what Jesus is saying here is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In order to be saved, here's how we are naturally. If you want the kingdom of God, you have to be emptied, right? Now, who likes doing that? Is life really great like this? No. No. But it's only by being emptied that God now can come and fill us with something different, something better. For theirs is the kingdom of God. There's no room for the kingdom of God with this person prior, right? I I could have taken this whole thing and poured it in. There's no room. Why? Because it's full of self. But for the person who empties themselves, now they are in a position where through the gospel of Jesus, God can give them a kingdom, okay? Now, you might be here going, I can't empty my heart enough for a kingdom. You don't have to. You just have to empty it enough for the king. And that king is Jesus. And when he comes into your heart, you get a king, and with him, you get his kingdom. And you step into the realm of the rule of God in your life. And that's the kingdom that Jesus is talking about here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the two kind of, if I could put these back here like this as an illustration, these are the two kinds of people that Jesus talks about when he tells about the tax collector and the Pharisee who go to the temple to pray. Do you remember this, right? The Pharisee goes, and he stands there, and he looks around, maybe like you at church today. He looks around, and he thinks to himself, you know what? I'm better than most of the people I see here. I know him, I do business with him, and I'm so much more moral than he is, and I went to high school with her, and we all know what she was like, and this person, I've been in a small group, and I like totally know their story, and I sort of see myself, I'm doing pretty good. The Pharisee looks at the tax collector and says, I'm glad I'm not, I'm not like all men, especially this tax collector over here. Okay. What's going on in his heart? It's all full of him. The tax collector famous sinner is in the corner. He's not looking up. He's not comparing to anybody else. He is looking into his own heart, and he prays to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says it was the tax collector who left that day justified in the eyes of God. That is a picture of what it means to be poor in spirit. When we are poor in spirit, now there is room for God to give us his kingdom, the king and the blessings that come from him. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted, the Bible says. And that's not just life in the kingdom. 
Okay, like how I become a Christian, like I got to empty myself, right? But then I'd quickly fill myself up again with me. No, this is life in the kingdom. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I don't just sing that when I become a Christian. I sing it every day. I look in the mirror and I see that I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And from that position of humility, now the blessings of the kingdom of God are, are granted to us. And that's what he's talking about here and these other ones that he lists. And this is so hard because of pride. I know this well myself. Many years ago, I read this story. It stuck with me, okay? It stuck with me. I'm going to just read this because it gets at the very thing that we're talking about here. This is, a, I believe, a true story. There was a church service in England. A pastor saw a former thief kneeling beside a judge of the high court of England. After his release, the thief had become converted and become a Christian worker. After the service, the judge happened to walk out with the pastor. And the judge said, did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The pastor replied, yes, but I didn't think that you did. The two walked along in silence for a few moments. Then the judge said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement. Yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. Then the judge asked, but to whom do you refer? The pastor responded, why, to the conversion of that convict. The judge said, but I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. Surprised, the pastor said, you were thinking of yourself. I don't quite understand. Yes, the judge went on. It was natural for the burglar to respond to God's grace when he came out of jail. His life was nothing but a desperate history of crime, and when he saw the Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. He understood how much he needed that help. But me, I was taught from earliest infancy to be a gentleman, that my word was my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, receive communion. I went on to Oxford, took my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually ascended to judge. My friend, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I am a greater miracle of grace. You know who the Sermon on the Mount is hardest for? Good, moral people. The sinner, the famous sinner, knows they need a Savior. But how many of you grew up going to church, grew up saying your prayers, you learned Bible verses, your mom and dad, or grandma or grandpa, whoever it was. You've been a good person, generally, you know, graded on a curve. You come to church, came to first service today. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit. This requires us to see ourselves as God sees us. Not as we see ourselves, not as my mom thinks about me, not as my spouse thinks about me, but as God thinks about me. The hardest person to become a Christian in this room is the good moral person because you don't see your need. You are not poor in spirit. And yet the gospel is that we are all 
sinners. That even our righteous acts, even all those verses you learned as a kid, all the times you've gone to church, all the good things you've done being a nice person, all of those without the gospel are like filthy rags. There's no value to them. And yet for us, it's so hard to see our need because we're good people. And this is where what Jesus had to say to those very righteous, good Jewish people who knew the law, went to synagogue, were interested in spiritual things. They walked up a mountain for a sermon, folks. These must just be the really godly people, right? If this message today was on the top of Mount Baldy, who shows up? Probably the most interested people of all. And yet these are the ones he says, you got to be poor in spirit to have the kingdom of God. This is the gospel, okay? This is the gospel. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the beatitude. This is the gospel. This is the song. Can you sing this with me? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's what I'm talking about right there. He doesn't start the sermon with a nice story, nice poem, sort of a work the crowd kind of thing. He goes for the juggler. The sinner has to realize that they need a Savior. And that is a, an impoverishment of spirit. It is a looking in the mirror and seeing myself, not as a great man, not as a wonderful person, but in desperation and needing a Savior. And here's the good news, friends. There's is the kingdom of God. That is as true today as the day that Jesus uttered these words that the sinner who humbles himself, empties himself, dies to himself before God and trusts and believe that Jesus is the Savior of all who believe in him, in that belief, in that personal trust, is the kingdom of God. You can know that kingdom today. You say, well, what are you talking about? You have to know the king, okay? That's what it comes down to. And Jesus is the king. To submit your life to him, to believe that he died on the cross for your sins, to humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up. This is what the gospel, this is what we believe. We don't brag about it. We are beggars with hands open to receive. That's how we become Christians. And the wonderful thing is, is that when a sinner humbles himself before God, doesn't care about what other people think, humbles himself before God, what do I hear in the distance? The approval of Almighty God, who opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And not just grace, but salvation. And not just salvation, but a kingdom. And not just a kingdom, eternal life. It's available to all who believe.
my privilege to share it with you today. But this is Jesus' message, not mine. Praise him. Praise him. Amen. Amen. The approval of Almighty God, who opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And not just grace, but salvation. And not just salvation, but a kingdom. And not just a kingdom, eternal life. It's available to all who believe. My privilege to share it with you today, but this is Jesus' message, not mine. Praise him. Praise him. Amen. Amen.